Oh God, what a wonder it is that you want to speak to us. That you want to step into our lives and our relationships. That you want to impact us. That you want to make our lives better. Lord, thank you for who you are. And I pray that you touch our hearts in a special and fresh way this morning. Lord, may our ears be open to hear your Spirit speaking. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You know the feeling when you're on vacation. You're, you're, you're just headed out and you're so excited about that vacation. I just imagine that that might have been what Arthur was feeling as he drove the miles to go on vacation. He was going to visit his brothers who live near the coast. And as he got there, he wasn't expecting what was going to happen. He didn't realize that the trajectory of his life would be radically changed by that vacation. I mean, you think of vacation as a time to relax, to have fun. Well, as he went on this vacation, something quickly began to change. Now, the first interaction that he had didn't change everything for him. You see, Arthur went with his sister-in-law, had worked it out for him to go over to the coast to have dinner with a whole group of family and also some friends. And one of his sister-in-law, Jeannie's really good friends, was a, a, a girl by the name of Naomi. You might think you know where this is going, but don't, don't guess that you know how fast it could happen because as they got together and Arthur and Naomi were there, they were at the restaurant, they determined that they were not interested in each other whatsoever. You see, Naomi was just going through a really rough divorce. She had been through a lot. She'd suffered through having broken trust happen again and again in her life. And, and to distrust in a relationship wasn't necessarily something that she felt ready for. And Arthur, she was pretty, he was pretty sure that, that Naomi actually liked his younger brother. So he was pretty sure that there was no interest there whatsoever. Well, fast forward a few days, and Arthur's uh, siblings ended up going off and leaving him alone, and Naomi found out about this. And when Naomi found out about this, she felt compassion for him. He's going to be all alone. Well, I could at least invite him over for dinner. He could come over to the house. And so he came over to the house. They had dinner together. And then Arthur said something at the end of that dinner. He said, hey, is there a park near here? And she said, well, sure, there's a park just down the road. He said, well, he liked kids. He said, well, let's take the kids and let's go down and play in the park. You know, if you have kids and you've been a single mom, you might know the value that you would place on a man who would care about your kids. And suddenly, Naomi's heart, something began to happen. And as they played with the kids, we don't know, I don't know all of the details of the story, but the friendship began to develop. An interest began to happen that blossomed over the next three and a half years until, surprise, surprise, Naomi and Arthur were married. And that usually is the point where we look at, as a dating relationship goes along, and, and people are they're growing more and more in love, and you think, well, yeah, they've arrived. I got married to the one that I love. And then for the next nine years, things began to spiral for Arthur and Naomi. At first, he had left off some of his habits that he'd had before meeting Naomi, but 
they crept back in and they began to harm the relationship. And she began to notice some of the things that were happening and, and the, their lives were spiraling down little by little. To the point where nine years later, Arthur is laying on the couch. He's passed out cold from another drug trip. And Naomi's done. She wants nothing to do with Arthur anymore. This has just gone on too long, and she is ready to leave. Jesus said something really fascinating in John chapter 10 and verse 10. And I think it's a good place for us to start thinking about relationship goals. Because let's be honest, we all would love to have happy, thriving relationships that they go on happily ever after. We, we love for, for films to end that way, that it's happily, they go on living happily ever after. And yet the sad reality for many of us is, though we have set out with good intentions, we have felt the joy taken out of our relationships. But in John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus says something very powerful. John chapter 10, it's up on the screen. If you'd like to pick up a Bible, you're welcome to follow along. It says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Who is the thief here? There's there's an enemy, Jesus says. This is Satan. Satan comes and he comes to do you harm. He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. He wants to cause and wreak havoc in your life. You think he wants to do that in our relationships too? But Jesus goes on to say, he says this, but I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly. And this is Jesus talking. This is the one who created us, who knows absolutely everything that makes us tick, who knows our every emotion, who knows how many hairs are on our head. He cares about the details of our life, like we just sang. He is the one who says, I've come that you may have life and life more abundantly. And if you look at that word in English, I mean, they're, they're trying to pick a word that, that pictures a life that's overflowing. If you know English, you know that when you add a to the beginning of a word, it's to say without. And abund is actually an old word for where they used to build these, these uh, uh, boundaries that had water and farming. And so basically it's saying a life without boundaries. A life that's overflowing, that nothing's holding it back. A life that's, that's full and free and beautiful. This is what we want in our lives and in our relationships. So we want to go, first of all, to look at what the Creator has designed us for. So go with me to Genesis chapter 2. Now I want to invite you, as you go to Genesis chapter 2, that you pull out of your bulletin that study guide. You'll notice that It's going to be talking about something totally different on the points on the study guide. It's going to be something that I really encourage you to join a small group where you can look at this story of Abraham. And it's going to be along the same topic, but a different story and different verses. But if you flip it over on the back, there's a section there where you can take notes, which will be really helpful for when you get to your small group. And you can talk a little bit about what it was that God said to you, because it It helps us. Repetition deepens impression. The more that we go over verses and concepts, the more that they stick. Whereas sometimes, you know, I may be the one who gives the sermon, and by Friday, I may be in a small group thinking, what did I talk about last week? 
And you know how easy that is to happen. So I encourage you to take some notes today as we go through this. But Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we pick up the story. Genesis chapter 1 is God creating the earth. And Genesis chapter 2 is also God creating the earth. It's two parallel accounts with different focuses. Just like in the Gospels, you have the perspective of Mark. And then you have the perspective of Matthew and the perspective of Luke. Here we have... God describing, and it's all from the pen of Moses, but it's describing different aspects and perspectives of creation. So Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we pick it up and it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust. This one is to picture the closeness of God. Genesis chapter 1 pictured his all-encompassing creation. This one wants to picture God is coming close. And we know that too because it also uses the personal name of God for the first time in this chapter, Yahweh. So here it says, And the Lord, that's Yahweh, God, formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Do you feel the closeness, the the personalness of this account? God is coming down, and with his own hands, he's forming man out of the dust. And then it says that he comes and he actually breathes into his nostrils. And in that first conscious waking moment for Adam, can you imagine what he sees? There's the face of God who just breathed life into him. His loving creator who wants to be very near and very close. The God who is Love. John, 1 John 4 and verse 8 tells us that God is love. The God who we know is described as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a, a trinity of love. There's a Godhead that, that existed throughout eternity, enjoying each other's presence. And yet, for them, that wasn't enough. For them, they, they had this amazing fellowship between the three of them. And yet, they wanted something more. And so they form man out of the dust of the earth, breathe into his nostrils the breath of life because they wanted to share that love. God wanted to share that love. Verse 8 continues, the Lord God planted a garden east in, eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. This is the Hebrew word gone for garden, which is what somebody would give to a king. It's a gift fit for a king. God gives him one of the best possible gifts, and that is a beautiful garden. I'm so thankful for all the work that's gone into putting a, a beautiful garden for our school And if you get a chance, you should go check out our school and the garden that's up there. And your kid will enjoy it, I guarantee it. So he created this garden for Adam to be able to enjoy. And it says, Out of the ground of the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Everything sounds very good and very beautiful, doesn't it? The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then it goes on to describe the different rivers that flowed. And look down in verse 12 as it says, And the gold of the land is good. Bedellum and the onyx stone are there. There were these precious gems that weren't hidden in the earth yet. The flood hadn't come. And and it was just beautiful to look on the earth at this point. 
Then you look down in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. He gave him a job. He gave him a a life work. It wasn't like he just came into just enjoying things, but he had this opportunity to thrive and grow. Like Genesis 1 tells us to, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it. At this point, it sounds like it's a beautiful and good and perfect creation, doesn't it? And Genesis 1 tells us that again and again. And so he created in the first and the second day, and he saw that it was good. It was good. Each and every day, that's repeated, that the creation is good. But we're going to find in Genesis chapter 2 that while God has said each element of creation is good, that there is something missing here. Something that means everything for humanity has not yet come to be. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. He says, Here's the opportunity to eat, to sustain your life. I'm giving you all of these trees. You can go throughout the garden and eat from all of them. And then he goes on to say this in verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. He places one small, tiny boundary in order to give Adam the option, will I have God or will I choose to live for myself? Do I believe that his law, his government is what I want? Will I accept what he has told me to do or will I choose my own way and live selfishly and grasp things for myself? Verse 18 And the Lord God said, now notice here, up to this point, everything sounds good. Everything sounds beautiful. God had said it is good in Genesis chapter 1. But look at what he says. He says the exact opposite. The Lord God said, it is not good. Something is missing. Creation isn't fully completed yet. He looks down at creation. He sees all the things that he's created. This beautiful garden, all of these trees, all of these things for Adam to enjoy. And he looks at Adam and he says, this is not good. This is not everything that, 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 that is needed. It is not good that man should be alone. Do you see what God wants here? From the very beginning of creation, God's goal was for us to live in community, for us to live in relationship. The reality of who God is, as 1 John 4 tells us, that God is love, requires others, does it not? In order for me to love, I can't just be here by myself, sitting in a chair in the corner and saying, I love. Who am I going to love? I have to have another person. I have to have an object to which to put that love. God, that's why God is three in one. This concept that is so hard for us to grasp, but it's the perfect number for love to exist. You have Father and Son, but they share their love with the Holy Spirit. And it's this beautiful picture of love. In fact, I love uh, what it it says in uh, this book, about the Trinity, written by Professor Millard J. Erickson, talking about what reality entails. What is reality based upon? He says this, If reality is fundamentally physical, then the primary force binding it together is electromagnetic. Does that make sense? 
So if, if when God is creating, all that he's doing is putting physical laws together, he's just putting together physical processes, if that is all it's about, then the only thing that binds us together is electromagnetic force. Then it goes on to say, if, however, reality is fundamentally social, then the most powerful constituting force is that which binds persons together, namely love. Isn't that beautiful? The reality of all the universe as God comes very close and personal, as he creates, as he forms in the dust, he wants for Adam to realize something. He wants Adam to not feel complete at this point. He wants for Adam to see that there is something more, that life just with stuff isn't enough but that what will fulfill him is love. Reality is fundamentally social. That's what we learn here in Genesis chapter 2, that God wants for us to understand that it is not good to be alone. This isn't just talking about marriage relationships, but think about it for Adam. When, when God is looking at Adam and he's saying, it's not good for him to be alone, he's not just thinking about forming a wife for him. But he's also thinking about that they'll be able to have children. So they'll be able to have a family. And those, the family will be able to have family. And they'll be able to have friendships. And, and he's thinking about this more beautiful picture of relationships. And God's saying, I don't just want to create beings who can just enjoy the stuff that I've made. But I want them to enter into a social reality. I want them to have beautiful relationships because that's what thrills my heart and I know that it's going to thrill their hearts too so this is look at what God does verse uh, 18 continues he says I will make him a helper comparable to him this is interesting in the Hebrew if you look at this Helper is a word that is used sometimes to describe how God helps us. It's, it's similar to the word how God shields us. So it's a powerful word of what God does in our life. So sometimes we look at this as like a helper, as in one is more important than the other in this, uh, this writing of it. But here it's, it's not the picture of the Hebrew word that's being used here. So it says, a helper comparable to him. Another very interesting word, which is based on two prepositions. The first one is basically saying similar to, or like, or as. And then the second one is saying opposite, or in front of, or different from. So it's combining two words that say similar and yet different. They're similar and yet different. And we'll see why that's important as we go on a little bit further here. Reading in verse, uh, where were we? Reading now in verse 18. Is that where we were? Yeah, verse 19. Out of the ground the the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. This is so much fun. God comes animal by animal. First, he brings a giraffe, and he he brings it over to Adam, and he's like, okay, let's watch and see. What is Adam? I've given him this dominion. What is he going to name this giraffe? And as as the the giraffe comes up, I don't know exactly what it is in Hebrew, but Adam says, oh, I'm going to call it that. And then he brings him monkeys. He brings him birds. He brings him all of these creatures. And God is just wanting for Adam to have a part 
in all of the creation. He wants to have this friendship with Adam, this personal experience with Adam, and he's allowing Adam to, to, to join him in the beautiful work that he has already finished. So God brings animal by animal, just brings it over to Adam, and Adam called, and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, this is crucial. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. God not only wanted for Adam to join him in this delightful experience of seeing all of the beautiful animals and of naming them and all of that, but God specifically wanted for Adam to recognize something. He wanted for him to see that, yes, it's good. I mean, there's dogs that he probably named, and he saw how friendly they were, and he, they're man's best friend, but there's still just something not there in their relationship that he was looking for. And God brings him elephants, and there's definitely, he could ride on the elephant, but that's not quite what he's looking for. There's got to be something more here. And God wants to create in his heart that sense that there's got to be something more. God could have created Adam and Eve on the same day. He could have made it so that Adam didn't have this angst in his heart. But instead, he created it like this so that Adam would recognize, I need something more. I need other humans. I need other beings who are like me, not exactly the same as me, but I need interactions to fulfill and complete my life. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. Adam doesn't get to, to be a part of all of this creation that's going to happen, but God wants to surprise him with something beautiful. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place, kind of interesting, isn't it? That it's a rib. It's not from the top of his head and it's not something from, from his feet, but he chooses a rib from right in the middle of his side, which a commentary, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, talks about this as saying it was to represent the equal nature of this being that was being created. As this rib is taken out, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Then listen to what Adam says. He is absolutely delighted. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Finally, there's somebody who's similar to me. A helper comparable to me. Not exactly the same. Not in exact form as me, and yet somebody to compliment me, somebody that, that together we make this beautiful picture of what God has designed for us. And verse 24 pictures that a little bit more. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is an incredible mystery, Paul goes on to tell us in Ephesians chapter 5. This is, this is something beyond our comprehension that God is doing here. And why does he do this? Look back at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 gives us this picture. It first of all gives us this picture of the Trinity in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us, notice the plural, let us make man in what? What does it say? 
in our image. Let us make man in our image. Let us, let us make him with the capacity to love like we love, to have the experience that we have. But it goes on to describe more specifically, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 27, it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He created him. Male and female, he created them. This beautiful picture of the image of God was not complete without another human being being present. Does that make sense? If reality is fundamentally social, when God designed humans, he wasn't content to leave Adam off by himself, but instead he created other human beings so that they could enjoy the same beautiful fellowship that we talked about last Sabbath that Jesus prayed. Make them one as I and the Father are one. Give them that love, that community, that enjoyment of each other. But Jesus told us what? The thief has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life, and life more abundantly. We see exactly that happening as we read on in chapter 3. We read about a serpent who comes to Eve in verse 1 and says to Eve, Did God really say to you that you shouldn't eat from every tree of the garden? Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the trees which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Did God say that? No. Lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Somebody comes in to tell Eve a lie. And the lie is that God doesn't want what's best for you. He's holding something back from you. God is selfish. And if you would just look out for yourself, you're going to realize a higher sphere, a greater reality. A lie is told to Eve to shield, to, to, to shadow her view of her loving God. A picture is given to her of a God who holds something back from her. As we think about relationships, I want to challenge you to think about how you perceive God interacting with your relationships. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's with your children. Maybe it's just with a friend. Maybe it's with those enemies who constantly bug you and you can't get past dealing with them. Whatever relationship you may be especially burdened with or thinking about this morning, How do you think that God looks at that relationship? What do you think God wants to do with that relationship? Do you believe what Jesus said, that it's the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly? Because sometimes we get into the habit of thinking, well, maybe God is doing this to me. Maybe my relationships are falling apart. And And we begin to blame God or we begin to believe that God is holding back something from us. Or maybe I've been single my whole life. Just I don't know why God has punished me like this. But the picture of the Bible is a God who delights 
in us experiencing love and fellowship. It's a God who not only does he delight in marriage, we see that clearly throughout the Bible, but just in case you may be thinking, well, I'm really not looking forward to this series because we're talking about relationships and I'm single and, and you just don't understand what that's like. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 68 and verse 6. This verse 5, this gives us a picture of what, how God feels about many different types of relationships. Maybe you're somebody without a father. This is how, how God feels about you. Verse 5, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows. Maybe you lost your husband. Maybe you lost your father. He says, I'm a father to you. I'm a defender of the widow. Is God in his holy habitation? Then look at this. God sets the solitary. Some other versions will say the lonely in families. God has a desire to place you into relationships that will benefit and make your life better. That's his goal for you and I. The question is, will we believe the lies that Satan feeds to us? Or will we believe that God really intends what's best for us? Arthur didn't have a lot of hope nine years down the road in his marriage. Things felt like they were going to fall apart. Hope is absolutely essential to our relationships. We've got to start here at ground zero talking about our relationships. I know that because this past week I actually was over at my in-law's house and I got to watch a little bit of something that's going on this week. Does anybody know what's going on? The Olympics. So we, it was, what was it, Sunday night, we were, or Sunday or Monday, something like that, and we, I got to watch something that I hadn't watched before, and that was Chloe Kim doing these amazing spins on a half pipe, and it's pretty incredible. We were thinking, wow, this girl is phenomenal. She's doing all of these amazing things. You know, the, the slogan for the Olympics is Sidious Altius Fortius. That's Latin for faster, higher, stronger. And as they were talking about Chloe Kim, they said, She has done something that no girl has ever done before. She has completed two 1080s back to back. This is just incredible. Well, the next day, or two days later, I think it was, we heard about somebody else. Sean White was going to be riding on the half pipe. I didn't know much about him, but they were interviewing him, and he was talking about how he had totally failed at the previous Olympics and had fallen, and he was saying he'd gained this love for snowboarding, and then when, after that night had happened, we had school board meeting that night, so Leah and I said, well, we should just go and, and look on YouTube and see if what, it, what happened with Sean White. So we looked as he made one run, and then he made two runs, and it looked like he was doing really well in that first run, and then the second run didn't go so well for him. And then that other guy from, was it Japan, landed back-to-back, not 1080s, but 1440s unrealistic, right? They're spinning that many times and doing flips meanwhile. And, and while Sean had this special double McTwist thing that he did, his score was not high enough. So as he went to make the last run, the announcer said something that stuck in my mind. He said, Sean has been working on matching Haran News, I think the guy's name is, back-to-back 
1440s. So he made this run, and here's a picture of, I think it was the first or the second 1440, and then sure enough, he goes and makes another 1440, and then he does his double McTwist thingy, and then he ends up winning the gold and is really excited and celebrating that. But here's the point. People are astonished as they look at the Olympics and they say, faster, stronger, longer? For how long? How much can things keep getting better? Eventually, the human body has to theologically not be able to get better. But there's a variety of things, and I read articles about this. Technology can affect it. How they train can affect it. Different things can affect it. But there's one key thing that can affect people like it affected Sean White, and that is this. Seeing somebody else accomplish an impossibility. Sean White didn't train for back-to-back 1440s until somebody else had done it. He had an expectation. He now had a hope. He said, if he can do it, I can do it. And he began to attain, to try to do something greater because he had a bigger picture of what reality should be like. We won't go into detail on it, but this happened actually with Roger Bannister. Maybe sometime we can look at his story a little bit more. But Roger Bannister was told that nobody could run a four-minute mile. This is 1950s. And he was, he was told that you could die if you ran faster than a four-minute mile. And, but Roger Bannister had this dream that I think my body can do it. And so he ran and ran and ran until finally he accomplished that seemingly impossible goal of running faster than... Uh, than four-minute miles, something that had stood for 15 to 20 years, and people thought it was totally impossible. But do you know, in the coming days, bunches of other athletes began to break the same record, and today, high school athletes break that same exact record of running under four-minute miles. Why? Because they have a bigger expectation, they have a bigger hope. Friends, I want to ask you, how is it with your marriage? How is it with your children? How is it with your parents? How is it with your friends? What are your expectations? Because do we expect that God will do bigger things? Jeremiah 29 and 11, Jesus promises, God promises in Scripture saying, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to give you a hope and a future. But sometimes it doesn't feel like it. And it didn't feel like it for Arthur as he was there laying passed out on a couch. And Naomi definitely didn't feel like there was any hope in a situation like that. But I'd like to invite Leah to come forward and to actually interview Arthur and Naomi for us this morning. So I'd like to invite Leah and also John Arthur and Nadine Naomi to come forward. Many of you know John and Nadine and... A lot of us look at their relationship and their connection with our church and look up to them. You see that they have a happy marriage. John's an elder in our church. They both serve in so many different ways. Many of you have gone to maybe the grief recovery program that they've led out in, or you've just gone to seek counsel from them. I know that because of all the things that God has brought them through, they've had lots of opportunities to counsel and encourage other people. But today we want to go back 28 years ago to the day on the couch. John is passed out from a drug trip. Nadine's about to give up and just 
completely ready to throw in the towel. How are you feeling that afternoon? Basically, I looked down at John, and I, <clears throat> I hated him. I hated what he was doing to our marriage, to our children, and I, was, I just felt done, completely done. And um, <clears throat> it came to my mind to call one of John's um, uh, N.A. friends and... He came over and he called somebody that he knew was active in a recovery program at French Hospital called The Summit. And they came over and John woke up and he was very groggy, but he, they said, do you want help? And John said, yes, I do. And they called the summit place, and we went the next day for an interview to be admitted to the recovery program. So at this point in your life, your marriage was falling apart. It was How over. was your relationships with your kids? It, it was very difficult because it hurt them greatly, what was going on. They loved John um, because when he was sober... He was an awesome man, and the kids loved him, and the grandkids loved him, and, um, and it hurt him deeply mm-hmm. to see John do this. So because of the addictions, because of everything that was taking place, you could kind of summarize that your relationships were in shambles, right? It was, you were ready to give up. You yes. told us earlier this week that you would have just left him, divorced him, got out right yes. at that point. Yes. Relationships with the kids were definitely strained because they're feeling hurt. Relationships with mm-hmm. the grandkids. So John, just give us a little short snippet. What happened to you during your recovery process through rehab? Well, through rehab, I really got to just really face a lot of the issues that I had going on in my life. And just, you know, I went in there knowing that I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I was. I was just really sick. And, you know, they, they just... Uh, God brought people into my life. This whole process was a God process. I, I really had nothing to do with it. But the one thing that I was impressed to do when I first went through those doors was I got to surrender all of this. Not just part of it. I've got to surrender all of it. Because in my addicted mind, I was ready to leave her. I didn't want to have anything else to do with it. I wanted to go out and get loaded. And when I woke up that afternoon or whatever it was, I know that it was just God right there. He had sent somebody there and said, here's a program that you can go and do. And when I got into that program, he put people in that program the counselors, who said, here's things you need to do. Here are things that will really bring you to the point of understanding your addiction. And it was, it's interesting to me that this was in April of 1990. That was the same year that 
Ashley was born. And I think about, had I continued on, I'd have none of this. I wouldn't have her. I wouldn't have Evan or the other kids. And that's exactly what John 10.10 says. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your family life. He wants to destroy all of your happiness, take it all away. So recovery was a big part, but that wasn't the only thing, right? They both actually went to recovery, Nadine for codependency, John for the drug and alcohol addictions. Through that, God was able to do a lot in your lives. Your marriage started to become stronger, but you still didn't really have God as a part of your life, right? And you started doing a little bit of studying. Jehovah's Witness came to the door. You were studying a little bit. But eventually, about 2006, right, 2007, where did God lead you? He, he actually led us, well, what happened was we went to Hawaii to celebrate our anniversary. And I took the Desire of Ages with me because I still had it all those years. And I started reading it. And it just touched my heart so much. I know it was the Holy Spirit. And I told John, I said, I think I'm going to go back to church. Because it had been 30 years since I had left the church. And um, so he said, great. Oh, yeah, you should go. And uh, so I came back December of 06. I think it was the last weekend. And I brought my poor mother with me. I said, I don't want to go by myself. And, uh, and I loved it. Uh, when I came through the doors, I was really nervous about coming back. And Jan Hoffman was there, and she said she normally doesn't hug people, but she gave me a big hug and said I was welcomed, and they were glad I was here. And so I just started coming back uh, to church and I told John, I said, I think you would love this church. And I love the pastor. He's from Jamaica. And he's really, uh, really an awesome guy. And so he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And so um, uh, they had the uh, Mori Cafe. And I said, why don't you go with me? It'd be fun. You don't, you know, let's just go there for dinner. Yeah. And... Um, we came, and I'd already asked Pastor Ivor if he would come to the house to meet John, because I thought if John met him, he would be more inclined to come. And he, um, he, when we came in, he caught my eye, and he said, is that him? And I said, you know, and he came over, and they were instant friends. You know, they just loved each other. So that was the beginning of us coming back. So John ended up coming back to church eventually, right? Yeah, he had never been to church, so this was his first church to be with. This was his first church, and as you guys started to come, you started to make more friends, you started to become more and more connected. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Happ and Vicky took you in. I mean, there's relationships scattered throughout this Mm -hmm. whole story. Happ and Vicky take you in and do Bible studies with you for how long? Three years. Three years. So every Friday night, they're in their home, they're doing Bible studies together, Mm -hmm. totally loving on you guys, and eventually, in 2007... You chose to be baptized, right? right? October. So, John, for you, someone who had been disconnected from church, coming into a church, now being part of a family, what did that, what did that do for you? You know, I had really no expectations when I came in here because, as a lot of you know, um, 
I felt like religion was hypocrisy. I just felt like, you know, you guys come in here, you pray to God, you go home, you kick the dog, beat the wife, you know, whatever it takes, you know, to release all that pent-up energy that you had in church, whatever. So when I came here and I saw the love, and I mean, actually, it was even before when Nadine came home and was just going on and on about this church, and I went, well, this isn't right. You know, this isn't what I got in my mind about church. So I had to come here and see for myself. And through all the process that we went through, it was really eye-opening to me. And, you know, to see the love that was felt in here was really something that, honestly, I was not prepared for. I thought it was going to be something different. But it's been an amazing trip, you might say, to come here and see this. And, you know, one of the things, too, that I struggled with, and Nadine and I struggled with greatly, was I used to tell her constantly, I would never use again, never use again, never use again. So her trust, to me, was shattered. It was gone. So one thing that we really had to work hard on was that I had to prove to her that I was trustworthy again, that I wasn't going to go and do that. And, you know, for a drug addict, it's very easy for the codependent or the spouse to see when you're loaded or you're not loaded. It's real blatant. One thing that Nadine suffered from from her first marriage was infidelity. You can't see that on another person's face. You don't read that on another person's face. That's something that is very difficult. Even, I think, worse than addictions, drug addictions. Because you can see that blatantly. So she knew when I was sober. She knew all the time. And it was just totally a God thing that on that day, God took that obsession away from me and said, you're done. Because I know today... If I were to ever go out and use the way that I used, I'm dead. I'm done with it. But it was all through everything that he has done in our life and things that we have learned over the years. Because I had almost 19, 20 years of sobriety before I came to this church. And it was, he was working with me. I didn't see him and I didn't feel it. But I knew there was something much bigger than me that was working in my life. And when he sent Nadine here and her mom, that was the start of a whole other process for, for me to come here and to learn more about what he has done for me. And he continues to do that for me. So their story is really a story of hope. I know when we talked earlier this week, they were sharing that if there's just one word that I would tell people who are struggling, it's to hope that God is able to turn a messy, icky, broken, dysfunctional situation around. And, you know, if we had more time, we could ask them, like, what are your relationships like now? I mean, not only their marriage, but their family. You guys spend very sweet time with your family. God has so healed that relationship with your kids. Nadine says that the grandkids just adore John. They bring their friends who are having issues to talk to him. There's just such a love and a connection and a trust there. And that's only because of God. 
So looking back at that verse, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. He basically had done that in your life. You were hanging on by the last thread. But little by little, through the process of recovery, by the process of coming back to the church, and not just coming back to church, you would then went through grief recovery classes. I know Pastor Cliff was a big influence in your life. You took Bible studies. So many different things. God started to bring you to the place of abundance. And I think you guys would agree that right now, although you're not perfect, and there's still many issues that we work through all the time, that you would describe your life as full, full and abundant. And when Jesus said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly, he meant it. And so for each of you out there, no matter where you're at in your marriage or your family life or whatever, these guys want to say one word to you, and that is to hope, to believe that God can do it, to cling onto his promises, to pray, to claim those promises, and to believe that he wants something better for your life. And they're good proof that he really does it. Thank you guys so much. There's power and hope. God wants to do incredible things in our lives. Thank you so much, John and Nadine and Leah. And he wants to do it in your life because that's the reality that God has chosen to create based upon. It's a social reality. He wants for us to experience fulfillment. He wants for us to experience joy in relationship. When Satan came in and he deceived Eve and got her to eat of the fruit and got Adam to eat. The first thing that you notice starts taking place. They're accusing each other of stuff. They're, they're fighting and they're, they're pointing the finger at God. They're pointing the finger at each other. Immediately, there's broken relationship. And God's entire goal, you look in Genesis 3.15, is to put enmity between us and that serpent to stop us from buying the lies about what reality is like and to get us back onto the path of abundant life, which is Jesus. I just want to share two verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's the promise that God comes to bring to Adam and Eve. If anyone is in Christ, if you are a believer of Jesus, here's the promise for you. He is a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, I've talked to people before who they say, when I got married, I just knew it was a prison sentence. I'm in it for life, but it's miserable. <laughs> and this is, I'm going to stick it out until he dies and I die and that's it. But I know that I'm never getting divorced. That's not thriving either. God wants something more. He says, you're going to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old things are going to be gone. The new things are going to come. And he goes on to say, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself, that's the first step, through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God wants reconciliation in our relationships. He wants to bring hope into our lives. That's why in Romans 5, verse 5, I cling to this promise that we started off our church service with, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to you. Friend, there is more for your relationships. God wants more. He wants to give you an abundant, thriving experience in your relationships, be it friendships, be it interactions even with coworkers, be it with your kids, your parents, 
if it's with your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, believe that God has more in store for you. I remember as I sat in a class at Andrews University. It was marriage, family, and interpersonal relationships. Now, when my dad had done our wedding ceremony, he had told us, he said, his whole talk was themed on, I don't want you guys just to survive in your relationship, but you're going to thrive. So that was our goal starting off. We wanted to thrive in our relationship. And I can tell you, having Leah, that's a very easy thing, I believe, in my life. But as I sat there and I was listening to Dr. Swanson lecturing about family, about relationships, he began to talk about relationships and he said, relationships are not static. They are always moving in one direction or another. Relationships are always either getting better or they're getting worse. And it suddenly hit me. I'd gotten married and I'd been married now for five years and I felt like, It's great, it's good, and I thought that we had plateaued. And what he was telling me is, if you feel that way, normally what's going to take place, if you're not paying attention, is your relationship is going to begin to nosedive. If you're not working on the relationship, if you're not building the relationship, then it's going to go downhill. So I said, I remember going home and just asking God, what am I going to do? I mean, I love Leah and the marriage is awesome, but... It's got to get more awesome. It's got to get awesomer. <laughs> and, and so I remember, well, well, when I'm dating, that's a natural thing that you every day try to get closer. And if God really wants better and better things for us, if, if he wants a more abundant life, then maybe I should start trying to win her heart like I did when we were dating. So I set this alarm on my phone that every, every day it would go off. Did you try to win Leah's heart today? And that would remind me like, oh, no, I didn't. Well, okay. And then I would try to figure out something a little nice to do, write her a little note, put a, do, do something nice for her, make her breakfast. I don't know. It was random things. But it's amazing. When you expect that there's more, your actions begin to follow that. And I want to invite you to, to study the study guide with your small group or even if you have to do it on your own. But it reveals in the experience of Abraham The reality that your relationships can get better if you act in accordance with your beliefs in what God is promising to do for you. So I want you to leave today with this one thing. And that one thing is hope. Look to Jesus and hope because He delights in relationship. The reality of the universe is fundamentally social. God is love. And he wants for you to experience an abundant life of love. Will you join me in bowing your heads? Father in heaven, we all want for thriving relationships. None of us wake up wanting to have a difficult marriage, to have strife with our children, to have strife with our parents. But God, there is so much friction so many challenges that we face. And God, we don't want to minimize those challenges. We don't want to to downplay how much change needs to happen. But God, I just ask in every heart this morning that you would plant hope. That you, as you come to our lives, want to give us an abundant life. 
that you have plans for us for a hope and a future. Father, I want to ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on each and every one of us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you'd fill us with your love, that we could have more thriving relationships. If that's your desire this morning, I just want to invite you to raise your hand and just to commit to God that you're going to start asking Him. During this series, maybe you're going to pick a specific relationship just to pray every single day or multiple relationships and to pray this promise of Romans 5.5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we claim this promise. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with this beautiful love May we experience the abundant life that you've promised us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.